Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's word together. Good morning, Sherry and Keith and Darth Arminian. Love that. Uh, I don't think we have met before. Glad to have you with us. Uh, so we are continuing our study of the book of Isaiah. That's what we do here. We think through God's word together. Uh, Gerda? I don't have my glasses on. Gerda... And Decker, is that correct? Good morning from Ron and Curta. Well, welcome. Glad to have you with us as well. Thanks for uh, saying hi. So uh, we are heading in. Let me, let me say it this way. So we've been walking through Isaiah for several weeks now, right? And to this point, I am pretty confident in my understanding of the first 24 chapters. Confident, not arrogant. <laughs> I could be wrong. And uh, I want to always recognize that uh, <clears throat> there's more learning to do, but I'm pretty comfortable with what I know and don't know about these first 24 chapters. Starting today and heading through the last few verses of 24 to 25, 26, 27, there are some fascinating and difficult waters ahead here for me. Now, some of you may already have this all figured out. Great. You can enlighten the rest of us. Um, so I just want to let you know on the front end, I'm going to be kind of laying out, uh, here's how I like to approach passages, texts, things that I don't understand. I've done this for years is, okay, it's kind of the scientific method. Lay out a hypothesis. What could this mean? And, and I want that to be a, uh, an educated hypothesis, not just something random, but from what I kind of know, what I see, all right, let's, let's, work, let's work as though this is what's being revealed here. And then continue to study and see and test it, right? And then I go on long walks and pray and and let other passages come to mind and say, does this any of uh, any of this push against my working hypothesis? And and if it kind of does, then it makes me think, okay, one of the passages that I, one of I understand something wrong about one of these passages. Which passage is it? And and on and on that kind of thing. So that's kind of what I want to do walking through these hard things uh, in the next couple of weeks. So feel free, throw your comments out there, give me your thoughts, but just know I am almost intentionally going to push against hard, fast conclusions and just see, I, I want to be open because I just don't know. And uh, it's going to sound like I'm arguing for a position at times, but I'm really not. I'm testing a thesis to see if uh, if I can come up with some reasons why this thesis is wrong. So, with all that as a backdrop, let's uh, let's get into uh, the text. Let me uh, let me summarize kind of where we've been. Uh, I'm curious, uh, all of you, you know, Dar Darth Arminian, uh, Ron, and Gerda, uh, are you all newer with us? Have you been following along? I'd be I'd be interested to know. I know Sherry's been around, Keith's been around, and I don't know who else is on here today. Um, anyway, I'd be curious to know if this is, you know, your first or second time or if you've been following along for a while. Okay, so Isaiah 23, let me go back there, just catch the context here. If you remember, this was uh, kind of the culmination or the, the end of a series of visions that Isaiah saw about the nations around Judah, and God was going to uh, judge them. Good morning, Hugo. Glad to have you with us as well. Uh, and at the... Uh, Darth says he's been following for a few weeks. Okay, good. So you've, you're caught up with us. Excellent. Okay, so... At the end, we have Tyre at the end of Isaiah 23. 
And remember, it was interesting because God said, I'm going to destroy the wealth and the arrogance of, uh, of Tyre. And then she's going to come back and she's going to receive her heartless wages again. And that uh, that's the end of 23 here. And uh, it will be stored up or not stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. So we looked at that. Very interesting that uh, Tyre is going to be humiliated and then come back and get back to her whoring, but that the, the, the harlot's wage that she earns is going to be given to the Lord. Very interesting passage there. Gerda says, I've been following for a long time. All right, great. Well, it's nice to meet you. So... Then we started chapter 24, and there's no indication that this is a new vision. It could be. It does start with this word, behold. Uh, but normally in Isaiah, there's a little different phrasing when it's a new vision. Uh, so it's hard to say. But behold, the Lord lays the earth waste. And if you remember, I made a, a big deal how this word Eretz in Hebrew and gay in, uh, in Greek, uh, they don't automatically mean the entire globe, the whole cosmos, anything like that. Uh, it's often translated land. Now, it can mean all the earth, but it can just mean a region or a, a nation, that kind of thing. And that's what I'm arguing here. Uh, it seems to fit best to me that uh, this section is describing... Uh, some of these surrounding areas, but especially the land of Judah, and that the Lord is announcing ahead of time here that he's going to destroy his people. He's made that very clear in earlier parts of Isaiah, All right, that the, the temple, the city, uh, his own people, there's only going to be a remnant left. And, and that's what he starts off here. The, the earth or the land is waste. The Lord devastates it. He distorts it, scatters its inhabitants. That would be exile. The people are like the priest, the servant like his master. And he goes on describing in various ways how everyone's going to be treated the same. He's not going to show partiality to one class or, or one group. Uh, the land will com be completely laid waste. Uh, the land's going to mourn. The exalted people will pass away. And for those of you listening on podcast, I'm just kind of summarizing and skipping through uh, chapter 24 here. The land's going to be polluted. Why? They violated the laws, which I believe are the old covenant laws and the statutes, and they broke the everlasting covenant. And remember, I referred you back to a previous section in the Old Testament that called the Sabbath the everlasting covenant. So I, I think this is all old covenant law stuff that the, the Jews violated and God's going to curse them, as we see in verse 6. Therefore, a curse devours the land. The new, mine, new, mine, the new wine mourns. The gaiety of tambourines cease. They're not uh, uh, enjoying their, their wine and their strong drink anymore. The city of chaos, which I believe is probably Jerusalem, is broken down. Uh, every house is shut up. Uh, there's an outcry in the streets. All joy turns to gloom. Desolation is left in the city. That is a key phrase. We'll see that again and again. Desolation for the city. For that's what will be in the midst of the land among the peoples. All right, so then, uh, then we see this sudden joy setting, which is not unusual for Isaiah. And out of nowhere, they raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord of God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea, for we hear... 
Uh, for the ends of the earth, we hear song from the end. Sorry, getting ahead of my, I'm, 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 I'm kind of distracted and, and uh, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> from the ends of the earth, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. So we have the, the destruction of the city and the surrounding lands. And then suddenly out of nowhere, these glorifying God from the east, the west, the coastlands, everywhere. He says from the ends of the earth could be the ends of the land. Uh, we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. That all sounds great. But remember Isaiah's response was, wait a minute. Woe to me. Woe to me. Alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously. The, they, they deal very treacherously. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the land. Then it will be who flees the report of the disaster will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. Uh, for the winds above are open, the foundations of the earth shake, the, the earth is uh, broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, it totters, and so on. And, and remember, we looked at this yesterday. Uh, these are all images that we've already seen. David used this kind of imagery to talk about God bringing judgment on his enemies. So what I think is happening is that Isaiah sees the fall of Jerusalem and God's wrath against the nations. And he sees great rejoicing and glorifying God, but he also sees this intense wrath, anger, punishment on his people. And he, and he pronounced, he, he, it's a, it's a mixed vision for him, which is very similar to what he did earlier. He, he sees the fall of Babylon and that's a great thing, but the horrors of how awful it's going to be on the Babylonians causes him to, to, to be taken aback. So I think that's what's happening here. I think so. I think this is all still very Jerusalem, Judah, 586-ish uh, centered. And then it gets rather interesting. And we touched on this yesterday, but now we're going to dive in a little bit more. So Isaiah 24, 21, so it will happen in that day. And if you've been with us, if you know Isaiah, that phrasing in that day is, um, it, 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 he uses that as a marker of something coming. He uses it over and over and over again. And, and it's kind of difficult to know what day he's talking about. It seems like it would be in the day of the fall of Jerusalem. But then some other passages seem to indicate it's looking to a future day. So I know. And uh, you want to jump there? Hold on, hold on. So in that day the, that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. So yesterday I mentioned kind of in passing that this heaven is not actually here in the Hebrew. Uh, it's the Lord will punish the host. Remember, a host is an army. He will punish the army of the height in the heights. So host of heaven kind of gets at the same idea, but there's this contrasting view, the heights and the earth. And that's why they translate it heaven, because it, it seems to be dealing with the heavenly spiritual realm 
and the earth. So I, I, it's a reasonable interpretation. I just wanted you to, to, to know heaven is not actually the terminology here. So the Lord's going to punish the host of heaven or the, the armies in the height of heights. And he's going to punish the kings of the earth on earth. Now, just let that settle in for a minute. In that day, the, 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 the armies of the heavens, the armies of the heights are going to be punished. Well, what day? Well, you may be thinking, well, this is Revelation 20. This is the, the devil and his angels being thrown into the, uh, the fire, the, 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 um, the abyss, the, the fire. Maybe, maybe don't, 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 let's just, let's just gather some information here, right? But it is weird that out of nowhere in this context of the fall of Jerusalem, he says the Lord's going to punish both the, the hosts of heaven and the kings on the earth. He goes on and says, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon or pit and will be confined in prison and after many days they will be punished. Isn't that weird? So who's the they referring to? Is it the host of heaven? Is it the kings of the earth? Is it both? They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon or in the pit and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. See what's going on here? So they, which I would say, well, my working thesis is it's predominantly the host of heaven, but it could be both. But it includes the host of heaven, I would say. They're going to be gathered together. They're going to be prisoners. They're going to be confined. And then at some point after many days, uh, the Greek here is many generations, they will be punished. And the moon, I know the English says then here, but the then is not in, in the Greek or the Hebrew. Then the moon or and the moon will be abashed and the sun will be ashamed. Why will the moon and the sun be ashamed? For... The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. This is all so fascinating. So in that day, the Lord's going to punish the hosts of heaven and the kings of earth on earth. They're going to be gathered together and put in prison and confined for many days, but then they will be punished. At that time, the moon and the sun are both going to be ashamed. Why? Because their glory, the sun, the moon, the glory, the brightness, the shininess, uh, the, the, the resplendence of their brightness is going to pale in comparison to the glory of the Lord who will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, the glory that's going to be before his elders. This is all so very interesting. There's been another time when the Lord was uh, glorified in the midst of his elders. Uh, 
Uh, did I pull it up here? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I thought I did. Um, oh, yeah. So this is Exodus 24. This is after the... Uh, the signing of the old covenant, basically, when the when the Jews agreed to it. So this is kind of the consummation of the old covenant. In Exodus 24, it says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared as a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch, it out, uh, stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. They saw God, they ate, and they drank. So it doesn't actually mention glory, but this, this pavement of sapphires, very interesting here. So anyway, uh, so this raises all kinds of questions in my mind. Um, so I'm going to pull, start pulling together some different passages, not because... Uh, I'm, I'm sure, uh, I told you, I've got a working thesis and I'm just trying to pull some things together and I'm going to stay away from the book of Revelation, at least for today, and, and just pull together some other passages that may speak to the same kinds of thing and maybe not. But that's, again, I told you, I'm thinking out loud here and I want to bring you along. And, and for some of you, this is so new that it can seem overwhelming. So I, I want to go slow enough and give you bite sizes uh, to help kind of bring you along. For some of you, you think you've got it all figured out and, and maybe you do and you're going you're gonna to think I'm crazy for not seeing all this. And for you guys, you know, sorry, this is just going to move too slow for you. And then there's probably a bunch of you in the middle that haven't really wrestled with all of this. This is going to push against some of the things you think you know. It's going to introduce some things that you hadn't ever really seen and pondered before. And so it's really those groups, the ones who don't have a clue or those who haven't, haven't really wrestled with any of this, you're the ones that, uh, that I think are going to get the most out of this here. Uh, so let's just walk through it together. Again, I'm going to give you a few bites and we're going to call it a day. And then, uh, you know, next week we'll keep pick, uh, picking away at this. That sounds gross. We're going to keep chipping away. That's the word I'm looking for uh, to see if we can come to any conclusions over the long haul. How's that for feet firmly planted in midair vagary? <laughs> so uh, there's this, this whole thing is intriguing to me of the host of heaven, the host of the heights being gathered, being punished after many days uh, when the Lord reigns from Jerusalem. That whole thing just boggles my mind because we do see other statements in scripture that uh, communicate similar things. So you remember in Daniel, Daniel prophesied later than, uh, than Isaiah. And uh, he, he's in Babylon, right, during the exile. And remember he sees uh, in Jeremiah, he sees the 70 years are up of the exile and he begins to pray for the Lord to fulfill his, his, uh, his promise to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. And he begins praying, confessing sin, and the Lord gives him that vision of the 70 weeks, which we looked at in depth in our uh, What About Israel series, uh, and, and the Lord gives him some other visions, and I don't want to focus on the visions, but this encounter in chapter 10, uh, and, and hopefully you'll see why here in a moment. 
Um, so chapter 10, so I was left alone, this is Daniel speaking, and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, uh, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words. Whose words? Right? And as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, so just to get back up, does it... Uh, Uh, so there's a certain man that he's that is touching him that he's talking about. So the hand touched him, and here's what he said. He said, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. So this is an angelic being, right? This is uh, Gabriel. And he said this, and I stood up trembling. Here's what Gabriel said to him. Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding this, and on your humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. So you see that? Daniel prays. And from the time that Daniel prays, his words were heard in heaven. And I have come in response to your words. All right? You follow me? So Daniel prays. His prayer reaches the throne room presumably, and God sends Gabriel to Daniel in response, right? We don't think like this when we think of praying, do we? We don't, we don't, we have so abstracted our theology and, and the attributes of God and his omniscience and omnipotence and all that, and, and we, we sort of created just this, this framework of, of abstract truths about God but the Bible presents him much more interactive with his creation. Now, can we go so far in that and think of God as just a Superman, like a you know Thor in the Marvel movies or Loki or something, and God being just a you know really a super strong man? Of course, we can go too far with it, but we can go too far the other way and become almost um, functioning deists, that God's not actually doing things. This is how the Bible portrays this. Daniel prays, God hears the prayer, prayer and says, Dan, uh, "Gabriel, get down there and take a message to him." That that's how Daniel. That's how this is what Gabriel says. He says, "Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. I have come in response to your words, but." The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. What? Gabriel says, I was sent with the response from God, but I had to do battle with the prince of Persia. For 21 days, he had to do battle with the prince of Persia. This seems to be an angelic being, a, a, a demonic being that is over the kingdom of Persia. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people 
in the latter days. So Gabriel's coming to give Daniel an understanding of what's going to happen to the Jews in the last days, for the vision pertains to days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who was resembling a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I've retained no strength. Now, I know you're curious about the vision and all that, and someday we can get into that if you want to. But that the point is not to understand uh, Daniel's vision here, but this interaction with with the angel. So skipping down a little bit, he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. So this is the angel talking again. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received my strength and said, may my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, here comes the angel's words again. Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Whoa. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff to me. All right. So now I'm going to take you to a few New Testament passages. That uh, And I'm just going to lay these out. We're not going to exegete all of these today. I just want to throw these out and get them in your mind for thinking uh, as you continue to, uh, to ponder some of these things. So think about Romans 8, 37 and following. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that. We love that. We memorize that passage. But fascinating that in this list of things that won't separate us, he lists angels, principalities, powers, height. Many of those terms describe, elsewhere describe, angelic beings. How about one of our favorite passages, uh, the uh, the uh, armor of God, right? We know this. We must put on the full armor and stand against the schemes of the devil for our struggle, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. This is Paul saying our our wrestling, our struggle is against these angelic beings that's that's what he what he says and he uses this term heavenlies multiple times he talks about in chapter two we are seated with christ in the heavenlies toward the end of chapter three i believe it is of ephesians he talks about um the church and the work that's going on is to declare something to the heavenlies to the to the angelic beings that's what the church is for he says in a in a sense uh, so a couple more passages that get a little even closer to what we see in Isaiah. Jude. I don't know how often you study Jude, but there's some strange things in Jude. Uh, here's what he says. Now, I desire to remind you 
though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after having or after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, we know about that. We know what God did to the Jews there after uh, the rescue from Egypt. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. See the parallel imagery here? Uh, Here you've got the host of heaven. This is Isaiah 24 again. The host of heaven being gathered, being prisoners in the dungeon, confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. So the idea idea of uh, these angelic beings put in prison, waiting for a day of punishment. Jude says, God kept these angels in bonds, in chains. Which angels? The ones who didn't keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode? He's kept them in chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Uh, And then he gets into Michael and the archangel and disputing with the devil and all that, which is very strange. Uh, Second Peter is very similar to Jude. It covers some of the same territory. And here in... uh, In verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, uh, that's not, hell is a bad translation. This is uh, Tartaro, which is the place of of the dead, not quite Hades, but it's not hell. This is not Gehenna. Um, And that just throws you off. This is. You shouldn't think hell here. I don't have time to expound it all, but uh, it, it's not the same word that other, other places use as hell. Um, so I, I don't have time to get into all that today. But God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into this, this place, not hell, <laughs> and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now he's making a case here that God will take care of uh, false teachers And his comparison is how God reserved these sinful angels and cast them into this place, this pit of darkness, reserved for judgment. Now, there's one more. Somebody asked me about this in comment recently. Uh, 1 Peter 3.8, when he gets into this whole business about Noah. uh, Where is it here? All right, so... Oh, man, I'm going to raise so many questions here, aren't I? For Christ died once for all. So that he might bring us to God, having put to death by the flesh, made alive by the spirit, in which he also, and here it is. So, uh, I know I'm going fast. The spirit, which I don't have time to go through this, but I believe the spirit here is the, the capital S, Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit made him alive. In the Holy Spirit, I believe it says here, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah during the construction of the ark and God saved the eight and so on. And he gets into baptism and and so on. I believe what's going on here is there were spirits who were leading disobedience in Noah's day and God put them, the spirits in prison and through the Holy Spirit, Christ went and 
proclaimed victory over them. Okay, again, that may raise all kinds of questions, and, and they're good questions, but my point for us purposes is here's a, yet again in the New Testament another passage that says something about spirits in prison. All right, last one that we got to call it a day. In Colossians 2, uh, we have this interesting phrasing. Let's see, where do I want to pick it up here? I should have had all these ready, but uh, I'm just... Okay, so when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Sounds very much like Ephesians 2. Canceled the debt of a certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it away, having nailed it to the cross. So the timing here, and what he's talking about is when when Christ took upon himself the certificate of death and nailed it to the cross, right? That's the, So the crucifixion, resurrection is the time frame of this statement. And he makes this interesting assertion in the context of what God did did what Christ did on the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him and then he goes on talks about don't let anyone judge you over the Sabbath and so on this is a very strange statement But he says, in the context of Jesus going to the cross, death and resurrection, that at that time, God was disarming or literally divesting himself of the rulers and authorities. Those are the same terms that we looked at a moment ago in Ephesians and Romans for angelic beings, for for what we would call demons. So something happened at the time of Jesus going to the cross and rising again, that that was God divesting himself of these demonic creatures. And it says he made a public display of them and triumphed over them through Christ, Christ on the cross. This uh, this phrasing, this public display and triumph, is taken from um, when a a Roman emperor, for example, would go into uh, other nations and conquer them. They would often then have a huge parade back in Rome. And they would uh, often bring they would they would bring the uh, the horses and the chariots and, and you know, possessions of the conquered nation. They would parade them through the city, and all the people would come and gather, and, and they would be burning incense and and having a big party. And at the end of this parade of all the conquered, you know, the, the, the Roman soldiers would come through and celebrating, look at us, we're, you know, we're victorious and mighty and strong. And they would, they would drag the oxen and horses, whatever they didn't kill and, and the chariots. But then at the end of the parade, they would have uh, soldiers and leading men in the, uh, in the administration and in, in the, the king's cabinet. Uh, they would all be, they would be naked and and drag, tied to the parade, dragging through, and then at the end would be the king. 
And again, he'd be stripped naked, utterly humiliated, and he would be tied to the, the, the chariots and the horses and just be dragged through the city as people jeered and threw you know, rotten fruit at him. And, and it was basically everything they could do to humiliate this conquered king and his leading soldiers and advisors and that kind of thing. And then what they did with them after that was some of them, they would, you know, torture them, pluck out their eyes, whatever. Some of them they would kill, crucify, drag to prison, whatever. That is the imagery of this. He divested himself of rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them and triumphed over them. You see what Paul is saying here? God did that to the demonic realm at the cross and resurrection of Christ. So I'm just pulling some stuff together here. We have this imagery in Isaiah 24 of God punishing the host of heaven, gathering them together, putting them in prison, confined them in the pits for many days, and then punishing them. And at that point, the... the the Lord is going to reign from Zion and he's going to, his glory is going to be so bright that the moon, the moon and the sun are going to be ashamed because their glory pales in comparison. And you've got Peter and Jude talking about how uh, he's reserved these demons in prison and then he's going to punish them. And you think, oh, what? <laughs> what does all this mean? What's the timing of all, all of this? And I know you've got plenty of passages in, uh, in Ro- uh, Revelation in your head which are worth looking at, but not yet. Whew. And that's just the beginning of some of the strange things we're going to see in Isaiah 25. And thrown in the midst of this is a passage in Isaiah 25 about a banquet that the Lord is going to throw for his people and a feast, well, that is the banquet, and swallowing up death. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that is the end. When the Lord returns, we have our glorified bodies. So what do we make of all this? And what's the timing of all this? And how do we pull all these pieces together? I don't know yet, but we're going to keep working away at our hypothesis and see if we can come up with some answers. So glad you're with us. Thanks for your patience. And uh, keep reading, wrestling, pondering. Have a great weekend. Maybe spend some time in Isaiah 24 through 27 and some other passages and see what uh, input you have. All right, folks, have a great day. God bless. Great uh, weekend coming up, and we'll see you on Monday, Lord willing.